Anybody else looking for something? <laughs> so, good evening. Nice to be here. Springtime, beautiful out there. I keep forgetting what I've talked about here, you know, or there. And so I hope I'm not going to be repeating myself tonight too much. Um, I think it was T.S. Eliot said April. April is the cruelest month. Wasn't it? Yeah. But I, I love April because it has two of my favorite holidays. Not Passover, not Easter, April Fool's Day, <laughs> and Earth Day, which you mentioned next week, uh, is the 40th anniversary of Earth, Earth Day. And uh, I have been traditionally doing a, uh, a talk or an address or a rant <laughs> on KFOG uh, for Earth Day. And I, this morning I went in and did a podcast. Uh, and I thought I'd read it for you, share it with you tonight to sort of get you excited about this holiday. Friends, it's time once again to get down and pay some propers to the Earth Mother Pachamama, the goddess Gaia, this old rock of ages. And Earth Day should be the most important holy day of them all because it can be celebrated by all life, regardless of religion, nationality, kingdom, genus, or phyla. Regardless of the color of fur, feathers, scales, skin, leaves, or bark. The Earth is everybody's hood. And just think, here we are riding our home planet through the sky at incredible speeds, spinning around on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour, spinning around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour, and you don't even have to hold on. Because our Earth Mother is holding on to you, embracing you with her strong arms of gravity. And on this Earth Day, 2010, we give a big shout out to Uncle Charlie Darwin, who started to spin us a new story about who we are and where we came from. As Sir Charles wrote in the final paragraph of his famous book, The Origin of Species, quote, There is a simple grandeur in this view of life, in which endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. And that includes you and me, us beautiful and wonderful earthlings, born out of the three and a half billion year old dance of life on this planet, a story that contains as much awe and wonder as any Bible. To paraphrase cosmologist Brian Swim, only four billion years ago the Earth was a cooling ball of molten rock. Now it can play the guitar. 
And here we are, playing the guitar, here in the Holocene, my scene and your scene, living through a mild intergalactic period, but it looks like we're heading for trouble. The biohazards are now in the house, with temperatures rising faster than expected, endangered species increasing, a looming water crisis, so much trouble everywhere that the very word ecology can make you scream, ecology. And what is required of us? It's not just Obama's green economy and not just recycling and driving hybrid cars, but a change in consciousness, an upgrade of our mythology. For thousands of years, we've been telling ourselves we're just too groovy to be earthlings. Our major religions have come to regard the earth as some kind of training planet where you come to learn some lessons or burn off some karma and then go off to your true home somewhere else. But those beliefs are now dysfunctional. They take the divine away from the earth and remove humans from the great web of life. There's no longer any doubt that the scientific story of evolution is true, at least among people who have a large forebrain. <laughs> so now it's time to embrace evolution as our new creation story. Make ritual around it. Dance it. Bring it to life. You know we're built out of all the life that came before us. Scientists have discovered we have three brains inside our skulls. A reptilian brain, a mammalian brain, and the new human brain. And some scientists say we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by our other two brains. <laughs> we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. And yes, the lizard and the wolf still live inside of us. In fact, in this story of evolution, we're related to every being that ever lived, related through the miracle molecule of DNA, which carries the instruction manual for every form of life on Earth. We share over 98% of our DNA with apes, 70% with worms, nearly 50% with yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? There's a t-shirt out there that makes the point. It reads, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> if we start to see ourselves in the story of evolution, we will also find hope. Because we see that nature is a tough mother and life on Earth has so far survived comet collisions and ice ages, the plagues, even Dick Cheney. So there is reason for optimism. We also find hope by remembering that the word ecology has only been around for 40 years or so. The first UN conference on the environment only took place in 1970. So we are just now waking up to our impact on the life of the planet just now learning how we have to change our story and change our way of living. So I ask you on this Earth Day to at least take a vow that you will do something more to protect your mother. At some point in your Earth Day celebration, you might want to take off your shoes and dance on the Earth. Touch the Earth skin to skin or just lay down flat, ignore your inner cynic and give your mama a big hug. As always, she will forgive you and welcome you home. 
And this is Scoop saying, all praises to the earth, long may she spin. And remember, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. <laughs> so happy Earth Day, 2010. It should be a major holiday, and it is slowly becoming one. It takes a while, you know. But we do need ritual, and we need, you know, we need ceremonies, and we need, we need to really make it part of our, our mythology that we are part of the web of life. I think Dharma practice helps with that. It slows us down enough so that we actually feel our organic selves. We feel uh, our breathing selves, our animal selves, our instincts. We really start to touch the fact that we are part of the life of this planet. I really, I think Dharma is a wonderful uh, means to bring that story alive inside of us. So the other uh, great holiday that I want to uh, commemorate tonight and maybe talk about a little more is uh, April Fool's Day. And I don't know if any of you were in San Francisco on the 1st of April and took part. I, I, t I take part every year in uh, uh, an event called St. Stupid's Day Parade where People dress up, you know, in various costumes, you know, at San Francisco, and and uh, we we march through downtown, through the business district. Um, there's a band, the Mime Troop Band, and uh, we chant. Uh, like this year, we chanted, "No more chanting, no more <laughs> chanting," and and sometimes, sometimes we'll we'll walk by a, a group of. Uh, of people out for their lunch hour, because we do it right at lunch hour, and people, you know, office workers, and, and we will chant, go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a totally, well, and one year, one year we went to the Prudential Insurance Company uh, building, and we chanted, we want insurance. We <laughs> want insurance. But uh, what it reminded me of was that, that uh, there is a path called the path of the fool. And it is a, it's a serious path. It is not, I mean, you know, it's not just a joke. And it has its roots in Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism. It exists in all traditions, actually. The, it's played by the role of the, of the jester, the trickster, the fool, sometimes the foolish fool, but if the fool would persist in his folly, said William Blake, he would become wise. So you go through the stage of being a foolish fool, and if you accept your foolishness, then you can become a holy fool even. The holy fool is the one who... Uh, sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world. The holy fool is the one who does not follow. See, the, the foolish fool tries to fit in. 
to the ordinary mode of, of behavior of society. But can't quite do it because it doesn't have the, the gifts. But the holy fool doesn't try to fit in and just lives according to his or her own visions and understanding. So I, I count among the holy fools, Jesus and Buddha. The early Taoists were the great, were the great holy fools. Uh, they saw that there's really not much we can do uh, being as we're caught up in these great forces of cosmic and biological evolution that are just sweeping us along. You know, we, we, we somehow think that we have autonomy and that we're in charge of our lives and in charge of you know, the world, the civil, we're going to make a civilization that's going to get it all together. And, and uh, the Taoist said, forget it. You know, uh, Chuang said, the, the famous jester of the Taoist, he, he says, do you really think you can take over the universe and improve it? Do you really? And Lao Tzu, of course, you know, he, he, he was proud of being foolish. He says, uh, others are sharp and clever. I alone am dull and stupid. And Chuangsa has a great one-liner. Line, one he says, those who know they are fools are not the biggest fools. Lao Tzu puts it another way with the famous line, those who know don't speak, and those who speak don't know. But you have to take that line with a grain of salt, you know. And Chuangsa says, where can I find a man who's forgotten words? I would like to have a word with him. <laughs> but the thing is, to embrace our sort of collective foolishness, the fact that we don't know what's going on here, sort of surrendering to the mystery of it is a real huge step on the path, not taking yourself too seriously or your efforts to awaken too seriously. Uh, it really can be important to just lightening up your practice, you know, we're all stuck at a moment of evolution with a particular kind of brain and nervous system. And uh, you know how hard it is to get a few minutes of mindfulness, right? I mean, to, to prove your own foolishness to yourself, just try meditation, <laughs> you know? You sit down and you... First of all, you realize, oh my God, I've been running on, on automatic my whole life. Suddenly you see that the, you know, it all's going on there within you and without you, and it's just running on, and, uh, and suddenly you get this mindfulness, and you step out of it, and you, you, under, you see that, you know, what a shock that is. And then you say, well, I, I'll never be fooled again by my own mind, you know, or, uh, and of course you you're fooled immediately again and again and again. And, uh, and 
rather than sort of blame yourself or think that somehow you're doing it wrong or you haven't progressed enough, if you really acknowledge that uh, you are perfectly human and part of, we're just starting to wake up, you know, we're just beginning this game of maha consciousness, if you will. The Buddha, you know, saw that we were all kind of foolish. He, he, at first he said, I'm not going to teach, go out and try to teach these people what I saw. They, it's, it's just going to be like butting my head against a, a stone wall. And then uh, the god Brahma apparently came down and said, listen, there are a few people out there with just a little dust in their eyes, and they'll hear you, and they will, they will awaken, and you'll start the, the ball rolling. And so he did. He agreed. I mean, here we are. We probably, you probably came to the Dharma, to this meditation practice stuff, because you tried the great American dream and it didn't quite work out for you, you know? <laughs> that you thought you were, it was all going to, you know, you would live happily ever after. Remember that line? You would somehow get it together and, and it would happen. And So now you've bought into this other great American dream. <laughs> you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be blissful the rest of my life. I'm going to live happily ever after. The greatest thing to do is accept your essential foolishness. Then you can relax. You, when you're a, when you think of yourself as a fool, you can make no mistakes. And I'm. It, it's not a demeaning or mean-spirited kind of designation. It is. It is realism. It's like accepting the first noble truth. You know, and the Buddha was accused of negativity for saying that life is filled with suffering and you know but it's not negativity it's realism okay now as i understand it uh, uh, we're caught in a, a kind of in-between stage of evolution, kind of half awake and half asleep. Um, and why did we decide that we were so great, that we were so important, and like the whole of the universe was made for us, and that I think maybe it was standing up. You know, we kind of felt like we were above it all. And, of course, we had power over all the other species of life, so we thought, well, it's ours, you know. It's ours to do with what we want. We, we came to see ourselves as specially created by a deity who was concerned about us and watching over us. And Darwin wrote in his secret notebooks, of course, he didn't, he had enough uh, trepidation publishing, you know, his his story, his theory, uh, he said it was like committing murder. That's what he felt like when he, when he turned in his book. Because he knew that he was 
creating an earthquake in, in the world. But he wrote in his secret notebooks, Man, in his arrogance, thinks himself a great work, worthy of the interposition of a deity. It is our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. The wife of the Bishop of Worcester, on hearing of Darwin's theory, uh, supposedly exclaimed, Oh dear, let us hope it is not true, and if it is, let us pray it will not become generally known. Our foolishness is wonder. I mean, you've got to laugh, you know. We have to laugh at ourselves. For most of our history, we believed that we were, in, we were rational beings and in charge of ourselves. And uh, before Jung and Freud, and, you know, I mean, that's, that was a revolution. It happened just about 100 years ago, not long ago at all, that we started to wake up to the fact that we weren't so in such control and uh, to see what maybe we had to do. The genius of our mind, and uh, several neuroscientists have, have commented on this, the genius of the human mind is that it fools us into believing that we are in charge. I was interviewing Francisco Varela, a famous uh, biologist and, and Tibetan Buddhist, and he said, the brain was designed not to believe in evolution. It just doesn't want to believe that it didn't sort of come into being of its own will and volition and sort of, you know, just, here I am. What's really stupid is a few decades ago, scientists renamed our species Homo sapiens sapiens. Twice wise, twice knowing. Kind of to indicate that we know that we know. I think it should, we should just decide that it, what it means is we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. <laughs> Because you know, how, you know how hard, I think it, it's referring really, homo, what they were referring to is that maha consciousness, that kind of ability to know that we are knowing, or know that we are perceiving, or know that we are alive. And that you know how seldom you kick into that kind of knowing. And it's so much harder to live up to that, you know, I mean... So I like uh, Gary Snyder, he wrote, if we humans are here for any purpose at all, except for collating texts, running rivers, and learning the stars, I suspect it is to entertain the rest of nature. We are a gang of sexy primate clowns. <laughs> clowns and fools are very closely related. Uh, the clown in the circus is uh, playing the fool for all of us. The clown, you know, is really uh, mocking us in some way, always getting uh, thwarted by the physical universe, uh, uh, confused, leaning over to tie his shoes and tying up his 
hands and leaning a ladder uh, against a wall and going up and realizing it's against the wrong wall and um, and exaggerating our moods, you know, painting that he's got the big smile or the big sad. Really, he's playing every man, all of us. Charlie Chaplin probably did it best, you know, playing the everyman figure, coming to the uh, immigration center and, you know, the chaos of, of, of moving to a different country and getting caught up in all the, the pitfalls and the craziness of that, or the coming to the gold rush and, you know, ending up eating his shoe. He's so hungry. The everyman figure. Because we're all creations of history. I, I think we don't pay as enough attention to that when, as we consider our lives, as we reflect on our, our lives, we, we don't realize how much influence the time that we're living through has on how we behave, how we dress, how we talk. I mean, at my age, I'm just starting to see, you know, like, just the whole movement away from literacy or, or sort of book-written literacy to electronics. You know, I mean, that's a huge kind of shift and how different the next generations may be from, from me, just in the way they gather and store information. And but we're all, you know, kind of fools of being swept along by history. Imagine someday in the future when we, you know, can look back on this time, uh, people, in, uh, hopefully, are surviving people, uh, humans. They'll say, they were so crazy. They, everybody had their own little box of steel and plastic, and they, they got, it ran by getting this fluid way over on the other side of the planet, and they'd bring it over, and they'd put it in their only little, own little box of steel, and they'd all drive around. <laughs> I mean, do you know how nuts that is? <laughs> of course, we're caught up in it, so, you know, we don't see it. But, I mean, global warming, who, who knew, you know? I mean, and the truth just keeps getting stranger and overturned. People used to pray to Isis. Just think, uh, the descendants of a family living near the Mediterranean could have gone from believing in Kronos to believing in Zeus to believing in Jupiter, then Jehovah, and then adding Jesus in just the last five millennia. So even among the gods, there is occasional regime change. You know, it's like <laughs> time to move along. Remember just a few centuries ago and everybody believed the world was flat? I mean, it looks flat, right? Who knew? And the 1920s was the first time that we actually had proof that there was a galaxy, that we lived in a galaxy. I just read this great book called You Are Here 
And uh, it estimates that there are 180 billion galaxies in the universe and 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. So, you know, and our sun, to, to, if there's life on other planets, you know, our sun is just another star. One person's star is another person's sun, you know. It's, I think that's how it will work. Okay, so I want to just get on with this because we need time to, to discuss. Um, a path is nothing without methods of realization. So I want to suggest some practices for the fool's path. Okay, collectively, we make April Fool's Day a really important international holy day. And we all get together, maybe in small groups, and do these rituals. And uh, it's like the Jews on, on uh, Rosh Hashanah admitting that they've sinned. We would get together and admit that we are fools to each other. And maybe we could, maybe we could have a, a worldwide coordinated six billion person kazoo concert. Everyone knows row, row, row your boat. We could all get together and do that. We'd, it'd be so funny. We could moon each other, you know. Everybody moon each other. Small groups could get together and practice the Homer Simpson forehead slapping ritual. Okay? The, this is a mudra, you know. Uh, so I want, I want you to do this with me, okay? This is really fun and will really help in your acceptance of yourself. Okay, everyone who believed that after the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended, things would get better in the world. Oh! Doesn't that feel good? Okay. Uh, those who believed in the purity of baseball or the Catholic priesthood or the American electoral process. Dope. Um, those who believed that wearing crystals or meditating would solve all their problems. Dope. <laughs> those who believe that someday they will get it all together. Dope. See, it's, it's like, you know, it's just, uh, it's something we need. Now, individual practices... You can look in the mirror and, you know, every time you go to the mirror and try to groom yourself, you know, just look in there and look at the shape of the skull and, and look at uh, this animal standing there trying to be dignified and look good and understand what you're doing. You know, you're primping. It's a very ancient thing to be doing to attract the other whatever you're attracted to, <laughs> and, and just, to, just to acknowledge, you know, yourself in that way, not so far from the jungle, um, and approach your meditation practice with more of a bemused attitude, you know, just not too pompous or serious. This is Chogyam Trungpa. 
do your meditation at the simple matter-of-fact level instead of with some meaningful religious or philosophical or psychological undertones. In other words, have a sense of humor about what you're doing. Remember, things aren't as heavy as we think they are. Instead, they are floating above the ground, funny, swift, and lucid. It's, it's sort of coming to sit a little bit, as I hinted to you at the beginning of the, of the sitting, as kind of an existential strangeness. What is this being that knows of itself and is trying to, trying to be aware of its own you know, processes of thinking and, and understanding the world? And develop, don't know mind, Sansanim, that great Korean master who kept saying, don't know, don't know. Don't know anything. Touching into the mystery. Touching into the mystery when you come to your your breath and you know we don't know what's going on. So we can talk. Well, I don't know. Maybe we can't talk. <laughs> we can talk. We, you can talk. You, you are so well built that you can say, say what you had for breakfast this morning. Come on, just say it. At what, for breakfast this morning, I had. For breakfast this morning, I had. Now, you don't even have to think about where to put your tongue or your lips that there is such a huge part of your brain devoted to that act, it automatically shapes your lips and tongue so that those sounds come out, and I understand perfectly well that you had an egg and toast. And it's really quite phenomenal when you think about it to articulate all these different sounds without even thinking about it. I can see you're not quite as moved as I am by that. <laughs> you're all afraid to talk and sound foolish, I bet. Uh-huh. Eighty-seventh? It's impossible to get your yeah. brain around it. Yeah. 
Right, right. And they can't find the, the sort of seat of consciousness, the, any director up there. It's sort of a self-organizing system. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And to think that in the embryo, the cells knew how to construct that brain without anybody, you know, going in there and tinkering. I mean, that's a whole other phenomena. The phenomena just, I mean, they unfold and unfold. By the way, uh, Dan Siegel will, will be at Spirit Rock on Monday night, this Monday night, giving a talk if anybody's interested. He just wrote a book called Mind Sight, and he's a famous neuroscientist who's very interested in mindfulness and, uh, and the Dharma. Was anybody offended by me uh, talking about us being foolish? Yeah. Female fools? Female fools. Oh. Oh, who is uh, Okame? Okame. And she was one of the very early goddesses. And at one point, the Shintos believed that um, the sun is a female goddess. And the sun decided she was pissed off at everybody and hid in a cave. And Okame is kind of, and the reason why I identified with her so much is she's kind of like this frumpy, middle-aged goddess, but she's really <laughs> lovely. She's fun to be around. She's the goddess of the hearth and good times and rice wine and all these things. Well. Everybody was tired of sitting around in the dark, so she decided to kind of pull her kimono down and show, bare her breasts and do this really funny dance. All the gods started laughing, and the sun heard everybody laughing, couldn't help herself, stuck her head out because she wanted to see why everybody was laughing, and then they pulled her out, and she stayed out. So. And I just really identify with Okame. I just thought I think that she is one of those fools. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, with the economy as it is and just layoffs and stuff, um, can you, would you be willing to talk just a little bit more about not taking oneself too seriously through this time or like our situation, whatever yeah. it might be? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can suggest that, you know, you try to not take it personally, you know, and that your hardships are part of this historical moment, you know. Uh, you can't decide when you're going to be born, when you're living. And uh, so to take that personal kind of, you know, I, I'm failing off of yourself can be a huge ease of, of, of uh, the trouble. You know, I, I, it's, it's, it is hard. It's Life is full of hard. Uh, sitting, I think, is, you know, if you have some time, since you may not be employed, um, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you could really think of it as a time to learn to live really simple and to make your satisfactions those very simple kinds of things, sitting, being quiet, going for walks, things that don't cost any money, you know, um, 
all that stuff that costs a lot of money doesn't satisfy really anyway. We know we kind of know that. If there's any lesson our, our civilization has taught us, I mean, the most affluent civilization ever uh, for the most people, for the mass of people, and people are not happy. It's not, it doesn't work. Uh, our sages have told us that forever, but, you know, we really have, I, I would say, a kind of proof of it from our own experience. So read a lot of poetry. Read those great wandering, you know, Taoists, you know, laugh at the people who are working all day and in the halls of industry. And you can find the work that you were meant to do. Find the work that you were meant to do. Yeah, you may, I may be giving you time, you know, maybe the career path that you were on you know, uh, wasn't right. That was, um, as, as I said, uh, thank you for your Earth Day rant. It was really beautiful. Thank you. And um, I'd like to hear more about your, your story about everything is happening as it should. Because uh, sometimes I have trouble with that. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's like what Chuang Tzu said, you know, do you think you can take over the universe and improve it? On some level, and this is not on a level of, you know, let everything go to hell because I don't have any say in it. On some level, you don't. And, you know, you can't save the planet. The, the planet's going to blow up. It's just going to happen, or at least as far as we know. Um, on some level, we are at the mercy of this, of these great, of this great universe. And, um, you know, so we can do our best to try to eliminate. I think if, if we think of uh, creating no harm and less suffering as sort of, uh, you know, the bottom line of what, how we can better the world, You know, who knows if we even have a choice in that. I mean, you know, I, I don't, didn't choose, I don't think I chose my temperament, my personality. I wish I had been born a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. It just, it just, <laughs> didn't, just didn't happen. <laughs> and I don't think I can change, you know, really change it. I think I can ameliorate it. I can gain some perspective on myself and soften my kind of, I consider myself a cynic in recovery, but I, I don't think that basic temperament can be changed. Uh, the world, politics, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. I'm going to paraphrase this very uh, simply or whatever, as much as I can remember of it, but when Dalai Lama was asked how come he didn't work more intensely on freeing Tibet, and he said the only may way to make a lasting change is one person at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Well, I think that, I think, thank you for that. I think that uh, Dharma practice, I think meditation, sila, samadhi, all, the whole path is really, you know, changing the world one person at a time, and that we're all, you know, contributing through our attempts to awaken to a species-wide awakening, and trying to understand what makes us happy. I mean, it's selfish at bottom. Then we realize that, you know, what makes us happy is being around others and making them happy and, you know, serving and being in community and finding peace in the mind. That you get, it's not like it's, the satisfaction doesn't come from fulfilling your latest desire, it comes from quieting your desire. Uh, thinking about uh, foolishness and St. Stupid's Day and that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm just having this image of how serious uh, our, our, and gloomy our leaders are. You know, they, they go to sit around big tables and pound their shoe on the lectern and all that stuff. How can we get them to have a huge pillow fight? <laughs> or, or water balloons or... I don't know, <laughs> paint, the, paint their bodies and run around naked or <laughs> something. Something like that so everybody has fun and looks stupid. <laughs> when, when they were founding Seva, the Seva organization, uh, Wavy Gravy was one of, one of the founders and one of the board members. And uh, it was his job that every time somebody said, seriously, they would have to put on a little rubber nose. And <laughs> I, I mean, our president is pretty... I don't know if any of you watched the final game of the uh, March Madness, the college uh, basketball. He played, Obama played against a famous uh, pro player, played a game of uh, horse, you know, where you, you get four chances and you and he won. He 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 was he's fabulous. He can really <laughs> I, you know, he he's great. I like at least on the court. He's great. <laughs> Maybe not in the court, but yeah. Um could you talk a bit about uh um foolishness and death meditation because and it, death? Because it, it seems that that's the the, the biggest foolishness is that we, we're all going to die and we don't accept it or we don't think about it. And, and I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that. <laughs> well, there's... Uh, the Buddha said, of all my meditations, of all the mindfulness meditations that I teach, my meditation on death is supreme, is the supreme one. Um, I think that it's really the, uh, a key to seeing life clearly and seeing moments and experiences just dying moment after moment. Everything dying as it appears. You can't hold on to a single moment of your 
experience. And reflecting on that, and even sitting with it, to u- using sitting practice as a, a practice of dying to each moment, paying attention to the dissolution of moments, can be a, a real key to uh, living fully, living with a kind of uh, verve and appreciation. There's a great West African saying, when death comes, may it find you alive. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of the key. And I mean, I really appreciate what, you know, the Latin Americans and Mexicans in particular do with, you know, the skeletons always smiling, dancing, you know, doing all the things. It's, it's, uh, it's, well, it's a, cur- it's a curse that we know that we're going to die, maybe. But without death, there would be no evolution. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, that's <laughs> Woody Allen's famous line. Got time for a couple more questions Thank or you, uh, comments. I appreciate your interjecting humor so much into this. I'm uh, actually a stand-up comedian myself, and... As I well, uh, stand up. Yeah, <laughs> he said sitting. Right. Um, a, a question much on my mind, yeah, uh, and I'm kind of looking for this. And what the Dharma might say is, what is humor? What is laughter? What's going on there? To put you on the spot with a very easy question, right? What is, what is humor? What is laughter? I have some answers. <laughs> I have some evolutionary answers. Um, they, they study laughter, you know. I mean, if you were an evolutionary scientist, why not, you know? They, uh, they found that um, almost all mammals, rodents and dogs and cats and chimpanzees for sure, uh, young ones play, tumble, scratch each other, you know, push each other around, uh, it, that it's a common thing. In, in the class of beings called mammals. Um, they think that the, that the hooting of chimps, when they're playing, they, they often, <laughs> you know, they, and that that's the, gener- the generation of what we do, laughter. <laughs> and uh, I had a friend once who, uh, Paul Krasner, wrote a, published The Realist, some of you may know who he is, went to a humor convention, uh, but it's scientists who were, were studying humor. And one guy gave a paper saying that uh, it's common in all cultures uh, to laugh with the same consonant, uh, or the same, yeah, you, everybody laughs a little bit with the ha, 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 some, uh, nobody laughs with mixed uh, syllables like ha, fa, ka, ka, pa, ha. It, it's, all, it's always one. This, this guy studied this, you know, this was very. Um, and uh, what was the other thing about that? Oh, yeah, I read uh, recently <laughs> the first joke 
Some anthropologist said the first joke was uh, apes, and it was a fake tickle. It was going like that, but not touching <laughs> the apes. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> You, you do, with laughter, you, you, it's a great workout, cardiovascular workout. I, I, it's, it's really good, good for the system. And releases endorphins. Uh, I know I use laughter a lot, and I'll... Uh, uh, induce laughter in others when they're taking themselves too seriously or I'll see others induce laughter in another and I can see that process of you're waking that person up to the hilarity of being human uh so uh, yeah I guess laughter could be like that breaking that tension yeah thank you yeah the hilarity of being human yeah. <laughs> okay one more yes May 2nd? Uh-huh. Well, let's sit for just a couple minutes before we leave, a couple seconds. Thank you all for coming. I had a really good time. Hope you did. Please uh, remember the Donna, the generosity baskets, and hopefully uh, our paths will cross again soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.